0: The reading today is from Romans 4, verses 13 to 25. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless. Because the law brings wrath and where there is no law there is no transgression. Therefore the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace, and by yeah, and be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the Father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our Father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into the being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, So shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This was why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins, and was raised to life for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: But nothing useful is going to happen unless we pray and uh, ask uh, God to be at work in the things that I say and in all our hearts as we look at his inspired word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you so much that you came into the world to do what we could not do for ourselves, to take the punishment for our sins. To live the perfect life, morally perfect life, and give that to us as a gift for free. Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you. And we ask, Lord, that you would so teach our hearts this morning that we would rejoice in what you've done for us. And if we haven't yet seen that yet, that we might see it for the first time. And be on the right side of not only you, but of history. And we pray this for your glory's sake. Amen. Well, I just want to begin with a question which hopefully will help us think about what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 4. We've been working our way through the, the early chapters of Romans. But here's the question Are you, am I, on the right side of history? Are you, am I, on the right side of history? Unfortunately and tragically, I think, it's often assumed that the most recent ideas, the most contemporary beliefs that the majority believe must be heading towards the right side of history. There were those in the 1917 revolution in Russia that believed that getting rid of Christianity would usher in this utopia of Communism. They gave their lives to what looked like being on the right side of history and now, with Stalin's 30 million dead in the Gulags, with Mao's 70 million dead in the Cultural Revolution, and now Putin, we see where that history has led. They weren't on the right side of history. Or maybe many of us uh, watch those programs on TV, which are about the rise of Hitler, and many write PhDs now on how could a whole nation be so duped into thinking that National Socialism or Nazism would lead to a thousand-year Reich? How foolish! But countless millions in Germany gave their lives for something that they thought was going to be on the right side of history. But it wasn't. Now, what is common with fascism and communism and our culture is that they sought to get rid of Christianity, get rid of its strictures, its corrupt. We need to have a new culture free from the Christianity of the past. Yeah, maybe. But babies and bathwater come to mind in our culture, seeking to get rid of Christianity. Maybe it will be out of the frying pan into the fire. Who knows where our culture will end up in as it systematically tries to get rid of Jesus Christ from public life, from academic life, from education. But as we live in this culture, it's very easy, is it not, to have our confidence dented. To think, well maybe we're not on the right side of history. We're in the minority. I don't know if you spotted how Abraham was on the right side of history. Look with me at chapter 4, verse 13. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world. Heir of the world. Or as Jesus put it, in the Beatitudes, inherit the earth. Who are the heirs of the world? Who will inherit the earth? Uh, Last week, we were thinking what it would be like if somebody knocked on your door with a clipboard and said that our long-lost cousin had died and we stood to inherit billions. All we had to do was sign on the dotted line and receive the gift, I mean, it would would thrill your heart, wouldn't it? I mean, paying off the mortgage, foreign holidays, no student loans, getting on the property ladder. Oh, in our personal history, that would be right. We'd be on the right side of history then, wouldn't we, if we had all that money? And yet Paul is saying, no, there's something far better. God can credit you with righteousness. If you trust that, if you trust in what Abraham trusted in, you're on the right side of history. You will inherit the earth, the world. Now, I know it's difficult for those of us coming into a series because it's, we haven't, you haven't heard what we've been through in chapters 1 to 4. But I, I just want first, before we look at that, I, I want to show you that Paul is talking about this being credited with righteousness. Righteousness. Verse 3, chapter 4, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Verse 5, however, to the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Verse 6, to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. That's what it means to be blessed, according to the Bible, according to David. And it's true for us too verse 23, just flip over the page, the words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. See, Paul wants the Christians in Rome, he's, he's wanting them to join with him in this, this mission to Spain, he's looking forward to visiting them and, and lots of people becoming Christians, uh, but there's a bit of division going on in the Roman church, and so he writes to them to remind them of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, which is God's gospel, not Paul's invention. And he says, look, this is where you need to live your Christian life from. It's always been where Abraham and David have lived their, their believing life from. They knew that they were credited with righteousness. I mean, it's difficult to believe. Isn't it? I, think, I think this is why we struggle not just because of the, the language, which is first century language, but we, we struggle because our natural tendency as human beings is to think that us being morally good somehow contributes to our status before God. And Paul is trying to say, no. We are justified by faith in Jesus Christ apart from works, So we looked at last week. See, he's tried to argue, chapter 1, just flip back over the page with me, that Everyone, Jew and Gentile, faces the wrath of God, chapter 1, verse 18. Both Jews and Gentiles. It doesn't mean whether we've got a background in paganism, says Paul, or a background in religion. Everyone faces God's judgment, God's wrath, his holy fury, his right and good anger at all that is evil in the world. And no one escapes Look at chapter 3, verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles are all alike under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. And so he's explained how God's good news is all about Jesus coming into the world and Jesus dying on the cross as a sacrifice of atonement, chapter 3, verse 26, which which shows God's justice. God must punish sin. And so he punished Jesus, his own son. He took God's wrath into himself. Why? So that anyone can be forgiven. Anyone. So that anyone can be given the righteousness of Jesus Christ as a gift. Clothed in the righteousness of God. That's how we're right with God. That's how we're on the right side of history, as we'll see. Now, we've summed this up just to remind those who've been with us over the last few weeks. It means that I'm not okay. You you know that. You're not okay. You should know that. But Jesus can make us okay with God. And we're not right with God by an accounting method. We don't sort of add up our good deeds and hope that they balance out our bad deeds. No. That's not how it works with God. God makes us right with him through faith in Jesus Christ alone. He has to credit into our bank account an infinite quantity of righteousness, which can only come from God, to make ourselves acceptable to him. Now, that's by way of recap. Two things we're gonna learn this morning from the second half of chapter four. Firstly, Abraham will inherit the world by faith alone. So together, we are to believe what Abraham believed. That's how to be on the right side of history. Let's just look at verse 13. It's not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. See, how how did God tell Abraham that he would inherit the world? Was it through being a generally nice guy? Was it through the law? No, it was not through the law that Abraham received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. Abraham just trusted God, and God treated him as if he was as righteous as God himself. That's how it works. Verse 14, he explains, For if those who depend on the law, you know, good people, whatever, however we define good, are heirs, well, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless. Because why? The law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. See, Paul is saying, look, if people inherit the world by doing what is right, by obeying the law, if they are where history is heading, then faith is irrelevant. The promise of God is irrelevant because God promised to Abraham that his offspring would be, we could go back to Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, it wouldn't be on the basis of God's promise to Abraham. It would be on the basis of Abraham being a good and nice person. But that's not what happened. Now, what does the moral code, whether it's the Mosaic law or the virtues in, in Greece and Rome or any other culture, what does the law only ever do? It tells us we break it. It doesn't have power to change us. I was out for a walk the other day. Um, it was Tom, actually. Uh, it was a well-worn footpath. We've, uh, I've travelled on that, that path many, many times, and, and you can see in the field that you've got this sort of pathway where uh, clearly everybody else has gone as well. So you, it was a pathway, and you know that loads of people go down. It's a lovely walk, and, and the hedges had been cut, and it revealed a sign. Private. No footpath. Now, I'm not going to blame Tom at all. It was my decision. What, what do you think I did? I just ignored it. That's what the law does. The way other people behave, the way we behave, it doesn't stop us. It tells us that we're going the wrong way, that we don't keep God's standards. And that's what Paul is saying. That the law brings wrath. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. In other words, when there's a line, it doesn't stop you crossing the line, it just means that you know you've crossed it. And verse 16, that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace, verse 16, and be guaranteed to all his, that's Abraham's offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, Jews before Jesus came, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, quoting from Genesis chapter 12, chapter 15. See, Paul is saying, to so Christians in Rome who are Jews by birth and to um, Gentiles by birth, we are of one family. It's guaranteed to all his offspring. Are his offspring, Abraham's offspring, just the Jews according to the flesh? No. Anyone who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, all Christians, and that's how God blesses people. It's how he blessed Abraham. David says it's how he blessed him. I mean, would you say in your own understanding that the most important thing for you to be blessed in life is to believe in Jesus Christ and be credited with his his righteousness, that everything flows from that? We, we struggle with that, don't we, if we're, if we're honest. I struggle with it. Well, it's something it takes a lifetime to really grapple with because we seem to think that blessing is some kind of other thing than Christianity. I don't know, we might um, look at the, some families in the world. Uh, uh, the Williams sisters, tennis stars. I mean, amazing, isn't it? The number of uh, majors that they've won. Uh, the, the, the number of trophies, films being made by them, tennis stars, two in one family. I mean, what an amazing family to be part of. Or the Kardashians. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm really not that interested, but I know other people are, and you can inform me about you know, what's going on at the moment in the, in the Kardashian celebrity family. And, and people, are <laughs> they love looking at the wealth and the glitz and the glamour. Surely such a family is blessed. Surely, wouldn't it be amazing to be part of that kind of family? What is the family to belong to to be truly blessed? It's this one and every other expression of the family of God. Those who believe what Abraham believed. That's how he was blessed. Do you believe that you are right with God? On the basis of what Jesus has done. Have you put all your trust. Not in your goodness. But in what Jesus has done. Taking the punishment you deserve on the cross. And giving you his perfect righteousness. So that when God looks at you. He sees you as a child of God. A son. A daughter of God. As loved by him. As he loves his one and only Son. This is not a measly righteousness that we have been given if we're Christians here this morning. See, God is before time began, and he will exist after time ends. He fills all things. He is infinite and perfect, perfectly good. And when we trust in Jesus, he gives us that righteousness, infinite, eternal, unchanging, Righteousness, goodness, he loves us as he loves his one and only son. That's great, isn't it? Isn't that that great? You see, if we're to enjoy being part of a loving community, if this is to continue amongst us, and we value it highly, don't we? This is what Paul says is the key thing to believe. Paul wants to equip the Roman church for gospel growth, for, for lots of people becoming Christians. He wants to equip the Roman church to get on really well together and show a sincere love, chapter 12. Not to get all fixated on secondary things like what food you eat, or for us what music we sing, or our background, or our identities, no. Paul knows that the thing that fuels our love, our acceptance of ourselves, our evangelism, is this truth. It's the way he bangs on about it. I mean, you might think, Paul, what are you? Th- what's all this stuff about justification by faith or being credited with righteousness? I just want to try and get through life without descending into depression. I, I struggle in my own family to love people, let alone people in the church. Now, there's a book that I've just been reading, which is really, really helpful. So, you know, some of you might be getting this as a Christmas present. Um, It's the second one um, by Dane Ortlund. And I think he puts his finger on something. You see, we think of justification by faith. Trusting in Jesus Christ as the way into the Christian life. But Paul is saying here, it's the whole life. It's the whole life. It's a bit like a horse and a cart. You don't put... the Cart before the horse, you, you you must have justification fueling sanctification. But neither did you get rid of the rid of the horse and try and push the cart down the road. That's gonna be a nightmare. You need the horse. You need to live out of your status as one who's been made righteous by Jesus Christ. Uh, this is how Dane Orton puts it. He he talks about, you know, the spark plug doesn't just start the car, it keeps the car going. We tend to look within to answer the greatest question of the soul. Am I right with God? We take refuge in the truth of justification, mostly, anyway, while our hearts find subtle ways of undermining what our minds confess on paper. We receive the truth of justification, but gently strengthen it through our performance, generally without consciously realizing what we're doing. But to do this, to quietly confirm God's verdict of not guilty over us through our own contribution is to cause the entire doctrine of justification to fall to pieces and to become impotent in our daily lives. It's like trying to live with just a cart, rather than a horse and cart, with with an engine with no spark plugs. It's just going to feel dead. You see, we're not more right with God because we are English. We must believe what Abraham believed. We're not more right with God because of our race whether white or black or Asian or Middle Eastern or East Asian, whatever it might be. We must believe what Abraham believed. We're not more right with God because we're working class or middle class or upper class. We must believe what Abraham believed. We're not more right with God according to our earning power. We must believe what Abraham believed. We're not more right with God because we're women or, or men or, or empathic or cold or whatever it might be. We, you, you get the idea, what Paul is, t- is saying here. If we're to accept ourselves as God accepts us, if we're to accept one another as God accepts all those who trust in Jesus, we must believe what Abraham believed. He was on the right side of history. I mean, have you ever wondered why we're still talking about a guy who lived in the Bronze Age? (laughs) Now, I'm not saying there aren't issues of racism or oppression or inequality or gender or sexuality, but atheism's answer will not be the answer. God's answer will be the answer. And I'm not saying that serving Jesus Christ or obeying the Bible is not the right thing to do. Paul says it is, and he's going to go in quite a bit of detail but it is nothing to do with our justification. God is building his family by faith alone, trusting in his gift of grace alone. So there's no boasting, it's all by a gift. So we are all equal in the family of God. And we all face the same inheritance. You're gonna inherit the earth, Jesus promised, if you're meek. If you trust in what God does, his way of doing things, just receive a gift. I mean, how good is that? Why do we not want that? Because we keep turning back back to pride. So as a community, we're seeking to help one another together believe in what Abraham believed. And then secondly, and a, a lot more briefly, Abraham believed in resurrection life. So together believe what he believed. The main point is believe what Abraham believed. Be righteous as he was righteous. that's God's history at work. But what did he believe? Well, verse 17, firstly, Paul is trying to drive home in this church which is divided between Jew and Gentile. Verse 17, He is the father of us all. Is that what it says in verse 17? He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. He says, oh there, end of verse 16, he is the father of us all. This is the family we belong to, God's family, Abraham's family, if we believe what Abraham believed. See, the promise was to Abraham. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that are not. That's what Abraham believed. He believed in the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that are not. How? How was it specifically for Abraham? How did he do that? Well, in verse 18, Paul explains. In hope, he believed against hope, that he would become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring B, he did not weaken faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's room. See, Abraham believed in a God who could do things that are impossible. Because he looked at his own body, and he was 100, and he looked at Sarah's body, and she was 90, and he thought, it's not gonna happen. We're, We're way past having children. In fact, we're dead with respect to that. Abraham believed God that he could bring from him and Sarah offspring that would fill the universe. As, as many as the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. He believed that God was able to do that. God is that powerful. Verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. He trusted it God could do what he knew he never could. And Paul says, "We're the same. If we're Christians here this morning, we have trusted in the God who can do what we cannot do. We cannot make ourselves righteous. We cannot raise ourselves from death. We cannot take ourselves into a new creation. But that's what we believe, is it not? if we believe in Jesus Christ, we believe that God has raised him from the dead, and he will raise us also with him, God will remake the world, and we will inherit it. So verse 23, the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his, oh, that's just so much in these couple of verses that challenges our modern secular view of uh literature anyway. That's an aside. Ask me about it later. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us, whoever we are, who believe in him, that's in Jesus, who raised from the dead, uh, sorry, in God, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Just as we close, I think it's so sad uh, to read often in, in the media, isn't it? Uh, there's been several more, it seems, in the last week, of families torn apart by unequal inheritances or legal challenges to inheritance. Uh, I read of one situation. There was a farm worker who had, you know, a couple of... Um, I think a brother and a sister, and yet he worked on his parents' farm for about 30 years for about 9 or 10K a year And then because he fell out with his parents, they wrote him out of their will and he inherited nothing. It went to the the two offspring who had not done anything. He just won his case. But the family was blown to smithereens. It's why it's such a serious thing when churches are defined by something else other than being credited with God's righteousness, other than justification by faith alone because that's what makes us of the same family, who inherit the same thing, have no reason to fall out. We are not defined, if we're Christians here this morning, by race, by socioeconomics, by gender or nationality. We are defined by what God has given us in his son Jesus. He's given us his righteousness. And that means that we've believed in the one who will take us from this world into the new world, who will raise us from the dead and get each and every one of us here the world. We will be on the right side of history because we trust in Jesus. Now, just as I close, how do we... Let's be thinking about this. Um, We want to be a loving community here at CCC, don't we? We want to be one family... How will this happen according to Paul, according to Jesus? It's by never moving away from this truth. It's why each year when we celebrate our birthday, we'll also be celebrating the Reformation, uh, the rediscovery in, in most recent times of this truth that Jesus preached, that Paul preached. So let's keep going deeper into what it means to live out of the engine of Imputed righteousness, God giving us his righteousness. You know, horse and cart, I think, are helpful. We don't want to get those confused. We want to have a clear horse and a clear cart, and we're trusting the horse to pull us. And we don't want to, and I've tried, I, I was thinking about this this morning, so it might come out. We, we don't want to a combination of a horse and a cart is a, a hort or a cast. We can't mix these two, what will that do? It will mean that we lack power to love people. We'll judge one another over secondary things. We won't live as family. We've got to get it clear. And uh, it's it's lovely to have students with us here this morning and we're trusting God that the right number of you will, will find a home with us, which may be none of you or it might be all of you. But wherever you go to church, ask yourself this question. Is this what is emphasized? The good news of being made righteous in God's sight by what Jesus has done, being saved by grace alone. Because it's only as we understand and grow in that understanding that we know and will be confident that we're on the right side of history. When we go into our workplace and we're the only Christian when we go into our lectures and we're the only Christian, when we live in our families and we're the only Christian, it will be easy to feel somehow we're not on the right side of history, but not so according to Jesus Christ, not so according to the apostle Paul, not so as has been demonstrated in history from Abraham onwards, How are we gonna be on the right side of history? Trust that God can give us his righteousness. Credit us with his righteousness through faith in Jesus alone. Let's just pray. Let's pray. Father, we are so sorry that we drift away from believing that you can do what we cannot do for ourselves. It's obvious, and yet so quickly and easily we drift from it. Lord, forgive us from trusting just in a small way in the good things that we do for our right standing before you. Lord, we praise you and thank you afresh that Jesus has done it all. He's taken all the punishment for our sins, there's nothing left to pay. He's given us His divine righteousness. There's nothing more to prove you accept us, you love us, you will lead us to glory because of what you have done. And we praise you and thank you. Amen.